0: Just to remind us of where where we were just 15 minutes ago, (laughs) we looked at the importance of bringing our real selves to a real God and lamenting before Him, and the importance of speaking truth to our hearts, because our feelings are real, and acknowledging those real feelings before God is the first step, but then speaking truth to our heart is the pattern through which we will walk through life. And so Psalm 121 is really beautiful because Psalm 121 fills in the lyrics of the song we want to be singing to our hearts. And so Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent. Our next two psalms that we'll be looking at are actually psalms of ascent. So these are a collection of psalms that the people of God would sing together in a group as they walked up the windy road to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem sat on a hill. And as they ascended up the hill together, they would sing these songs together. So I love the songs of ascent. One of the reasons I love them um, is just knowing that Jesus sang these all throughout his life. For 33 years, Jesus sang these songs as he made his way up to Jerusalem. And so they're really precious. When you sing or pray a psalm of ascent back to God, you know you are joining your voice together with Jesus. And I just think that's, that's just really special. And so... We're going to look at 121 today, and we're going to talk through how do we bring truth to our hearts when we're afraid, and where do we get the power to have the hope that we've been called to have in God. So Psalm 121, we're going to read that, pray, and then get going. So let's get started. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. right, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful song that was on the lips of your son. We pray that you would help us um, just to really take in the truth of this song, to have fighting phrases um, to bring to our heart when we're afraid. But more than anything, we pray that you would help us see Jesus here in this song. And it's in your his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so again, Song of Ascent. And this one is... I think even like of the Psalms of Ascent, I like this one. This one's really special because it is describing a journey. So see in verse one, it says, I lift my eyes to the hills. So they're singing this while they're on their way to Jerusalem, which is they'll be going through hills. And so this song is almost like its own living parable. That as they're winding through the, their way through the hills, they lift their eyes to the hills, they sing this song. And so the verse 1 talks about how I lift my eyes to the hills, where does my help come from? And one thing that is lost on us as modern readers is we don't tend to walk everywhere where we go. And so the people originally singing this song, the psalmist who wrote this, um, they were used to walking everywhere. And so as they walked their way through these hills, there was real danger on all sides. And so if you remember when Jesus is telling the story of the Good Samaritan, this is where he sets the story. This is the setting of the Good Samaritan that as this one traveler is walking through the hills leading up to Jerusalem, bandits fall upon him and beat him and leave him for dead. And so the hills were a thing of fear to them that they aren't to us uh, because we have cars. And so it's not as scary to drive through the hills. Um, But for them, they would have known that the hills represented what was hidden and what couldn't be seen. And so their hearts were afraid. What was hiding in the hills? And so as he opens the psalm, the psalmist says, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The question on his heart is, who's going to help me on the road, on the journey of life? Where does my help come from? And so he answers his question in the next verse. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So he takes his eyes off of the hills that hold the things that are hidden and that make him afraid. And he lifts his eyes above the hills to the transcendent creator, the one who made heaven and earth. And I want to actually define again this some Hebrew words for us. So the word help, where does my help come from is actually the Hebrew word Azer. And we're going to talk more about this word here at the end of this talk. But the azar help of God is the strong, surrounding, protective help of God. So it's not just, I need a little bit of help. Can you assist me? It's the help of God that the people cry out for all throughout the Old Testament when they're surrounded by their enemies. It's the rescuing arm of God that comes in and comes up underneath them and picks them up. It's this surrounded, protective care of God that strengthens and carries and covers and protects. It's this beautiful word that's powerful and tender all at the same time. So what the psalmist is asking for is, when I am afraid, I cry out to God and I say, send me your azar hand. Send me your help that comes up underneath me and picks me up, that surrounds me, that protects me, that pulls me in. So what he's crying out for is the surrounding protective help of God. And so we're going to spend the rest of the psalm looking at what is this help like? When God brings his azer hand into your life, what is he giving you through his help? And so we're actually going to look, we're going to hit these quickly. Um, It's... How many things? Five things uh, that we're going to look at. How does how do we understand the help of God from Psalm one twenty one? Well, the first thing we see in verse three and four is that God's protection, this protective help, His protection is constant. Um, he talks about how He who keeps Israel neither slumbers. Nor sleeps, And that might be kind of a funny way of saying that to us. But remember the culture in which the Israelites live. They're surrounded by people who worship Baal. And when the prophets of um, Baal and Elijah came together, remember how Elijah taunted them when they were cutting themselves and crying out to Baal to listen to them. Elijah said, oh, has your God fallen asleep? Because one of the ways the nations would explain why Baal hadn't answered them is that Baal took naps. And he got tired. And so, if you cried out to Baal and he didn't help you, the answer was, well, that may have been a time when he was sleeping, and that's why he couldn't help you. And so, the psalmist is saying, Your God is not like the other gods. He never has to rest, He never closes His eyes towards you. He's like a mother who hovers over a child, He neither slumbers nor sleeps, and His care for you is constant. I love the hovering of God. If you start to look for it, it's all throughout scripture. So Isaiah 31 talks about how God is like a young lion who stands and hovers over his people. And he growls at anybody that tries to come at them. Or like a bird that spreads her wings and hovers over um, what's precious to her. That God hovers over Jerusalem and surrounds her, protects her, and defends her. Your God hovers over you all the time. Your whole life is lived under his constant, protective, hovering care. And so we see that our God's protection is constant. The second thing we see is in verse, verses five and six, our God's protection is all-encompassing. He talks about, and this word is repeated, you heard it, I'm sure, over and over again, he will keep you, he will keep you, he will keep you. That's the Hebrew word shamar, which means to guard and watch over and attend to carefully. So it's this, the keeping, the protective, all-encompassing care of God protects us and is attentive to every part of our lives. And he talks, he uses a Hebrew poetic technique here when he talks about how the sun will not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. So this is a common Hebrew poetic technique where they take two extremes and hold them up next to one another. Because in the desert, The sun was deathly hot by day, but as soon as the sun went down, at night you could die of exposure because it was so cold. And so he's saying our God's care covers all of the extremes and everything in between. There's never going to be a part of your life that's outside of the care and careful attention of your God. I love this word shamar, to keep something. I don't know that we really have an English word that really encaptures what this word means, but to attend to it carefully. It almost feels a little bit like a gardener who just looks at the leaves of his plants and wipes them and keeps them and waters them and attends to carefully the garden of his people. And so we see that God's protection is constant because he never sleeps, that his protection is all encompassing. It takes all the extremes of life and everything in between. And the next thing we see is that God's protection is wise. Listen to how the psalmist explains this. He says, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Now, of all of the promises that we see in Psalm 121, I would imagine that if we're choosing to be honest with ourselves, which is what we talked about in the last session, we have to be honest with God about our feelings and about our situation. I would think that this one would be the hardest one for us to believe. The Lord will keep us from all evil, all of it. And that's hard for us to believe, isn't it? Because you and I, every single one of us bears the scars of evil on our hearts. Every one of us has suffered evil in this world. And so we can read this promise of God and it feels difficult to believe. But I actually want us to put this in perspective of all of scripture. So anytime we're reading scripture, it's a complicated task because we're keeping in mind this entire story that God's telling that begins in the Garden of Eden and ends in the city of God in Revelation. And so one of the things that if we think back to the garden of evil and we begin to understand evil, one of the things we see in Genesis chapter three, actually in Genesis chapter two, when God is giving them the command, you can eat from any tree in this garden, any tree, except for one. Because if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, our version says you on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But if you were reading that in the Hebrew, what it actually says is on the day that you eat of it dying, you shall die. Or you will die, die. And what God is explaining to them, which they had no category to understand. They had no way to understand this. But what God is looking at us and saying in that moment is, there are a million ways to die. And the moment that you reach out for independence from me, dying, you will die. Your life will begin to unravel. And you will die by degrees. You will suffer death at every turn. And in the end, the worst thing possible will happen. The eternal soul that I have put in you that is meant to last forever will separate from a body that he originally created to also live forever. But it is unraveling and dying and soul and body get ripped apart and death occurs. But there's so much more dying that happens before the final death. And so God in his wisdom was saying, don't eat of that tree. Don't claim your independence from me. Because on the day that you do dying, you will die. And you and I, we fear the final death. But we don't think about all the little deaths we suffer in between. And I actually want to help us understand this. I actually want to read. I read I've read. i been reading a lot to you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Your patience. I want to read from A Praying Life. How many of you have read A Praying Life? Yes! I want to see many more hands the next time I meet you. <laughs> Excellent, excellent book. I think I've read it like four or five times, um, and I want to read just a little bit. I want to give you a little bit of background and then read two paragraphs to you. Um, so Paul Miller wrote this, "A Praying Life," and one of the things that Paul talks a lot about in this book is living with, and loving, and raising his daughter Kim, who is severely disabled, and so she's my age, so she's forty. Um, And so they've lived a long time with Kim and they have had many questions and many um, desert experiences with her. And he talks really openly and honestly about that um, in this book. And I really appreciate his honesty. Um, So here's what I want to... At the beginning of the chapter, one of the things he talks about is that when his wife, Jill, was pregnant with Kim, they prayed Psalm 121 over the baby. They prayed that God would keep Kim from all harm. But when she was born, it was clear that she they were holding a harmed child. There was a lot wrong with Kim, even in the beginning. And it wasn't, I think it took like 19 years before they got the diagnosis of, of severe pervasive autism. So this was, I was born in 81, as was Kim. So back in the 80s, we just didn't know a lot about Autism, And so they went through terrible situations with her. At some point, they were even accused of abusing her, that they had done something to Kim to make her this way. Um, and it wasn't until she was 19 that they got the um, diagnosis uh, of diagnosis severe pervasive autism. And so I want to just read two things to you from this that connect to Psalm 121. He says, it was agony, especially for Jill. She had prayed that God would keep Kim from harm. But we were holding a harmed child. At one point, I told Jill, why don't you just give Kim to God? (laughs) Every time I read this, I'm like, that is so something a husband would say. (laughs) Why don't you just give Kim to God? Um, And she told me, Paul, every day, every day I take Kim up in my arms, walk her up to the foot of the cross, and then turn my back and come down again. It would have been easier for us if Jill had not prayed that Kim would be kept from harm. The promise of God actually made it worse. It hurt to hope. I love that he voices that there, that we can bring the promises to God and pray them over our most precious places in life, over our most precious things. And when the promises of God don't come true, it hurts even worse that we prayed to begin with. And I love that he just names that. But he goes on to just talk through all of the things that happened in their lives in the 20 years of raising Kim and all the things that God did, the having a child with this kind of pervasive autism, turned their family upside down. Every aspect of their life was different. And so it turned the soil of their hearts up. God was constantly turning the soil of their hearts and it was painful and hard. But what they began to recognize years and years later that as he turned that soil, he was planting something new in every place. And so listen to how he talks about, this is further on in the chapter. He said, years later, when Kim was about 20, so this is after they've received their diagnosis and are moving forward um, with understanding Kim's disability. He said, years later, when Kim was about 20, I was sitting at the dining room table writing a Bible study on Psalm 121 that I was gonna teach to our small group. I had completely forgotten about Jill's Psalm 121 prayer. I looked up from the table and said, Jill, God did it. He kept us from all harm. He did Psalm 121. You see, we had thought the harm was a daughter with disabilities, but this was nothing compared to the danger of two proud and willful parents. Because Kim was mute, Jill and I learned to listen. Her helplessness taught us to become helpless too. Kim brought Jesus into our home. Jill and I could no longer do life on our own. We needed Jesus to get from one end of the day to the other, we'd ask God for a loaf of bread. And instead of giving us a stone, our father had spread a feast for us in the wilderness. Thank you, Jesus, for Kim. And here's what I feel like he just explains so beautifully. You and I, it's like little children going to a doctor my, my son was the worst when it came to getting shots at one point, And he was so loud. I mean, you could hear him like all the way down the hall. At one point, the nurse came in and he was like three and he goes, I can't like them hurting things as she brings in the vaccination. And I love that I had that moment with him because I feel like that's what so much of my prayer life sounds like. I can't like those hurting things. Take these hurting things out of my life. You and I, we see God approaching us with a syringe and immediately we're like, don't bring that. I don't want that. Take that away. And our father is like, precious child, this syringe is your salvation. You would welcome polio into your life. And all I'm doing is giving you a shot that will protect you from harm, much greater harm later down the road. Now, I want to go ahead and acknowledge that our feelings are real and that we don't often think this way because we're finite little creatures. You and I see life like this. One of the people who's helped me understand this most is Amy Carmichael which I idolized her as a child, um, mostly because I had green eyes and I wanted blue eyes. And Amy Carmichael, one of the first stories I ever heard about her, um, read about in a biography of hers was that as a little child, she constantly prayed that when she went to bed every night, that her brown eyes would turn blue. And she was so disappointed in God every morning when she woke up and she still had brown eyes. And it wasn't until she was an adult And she was um, disguising herself. She rubbed like coffee on her skin and dressed um, in in the local garb of India. And she would sneak into these places and bring rescued temple the children who were temple prostitutes out of the temples that she had this epiphany where she was like, if I had blue eyes, I never could have saved these children. And so it was this moment of like, that's a silly thing. Um, But it's one of the things that just connected my heart to hers. But one of the things that I learned after reading more on Amy's life. A few years ago, somebody gave me a devotional book that she had written um, that when Amy spent so many decades rescuing children, helping women who were um, temple prostitutes and in, enslaved in that way, rescuing them. Um, but when she was, after several decades of doing that, so she would have probably been in her like 50s. Um, she went away for the weekend and when, in the, while she was away, the gardeners had done, dug a pit in the courtyard. And when she came home, um, she fell into the pit and she suffered terrible injuries and she spent the last two decades of her life bedridden. And like, when you're reading this, you're thinking, what a waste, like why would God put a resource like that in bed for 20 years? (laughs) Think of how many more temple children she could have saved, how many more women she could have rescued. But in that 20 years, Amy Carmichael wrote 30 devotional books with some of the most beautiful material I've ever read. And one of the things she says from her bed is that you and I, we see one inch of the narrow lane of time because we're finite. We can't see everything at once. Praise God, because how upsetting would that be if we could see all things all the time? You and I have blinders on. We can see one inch of the narrow lane of time. But to our God, eternity is as open as a meadow. That Our God sees all of life, everything. But you and I take our one inch and we look at him and we say, you were wrong to do this. And we judge his character and his nature by one inch of the narrow lane of time. But if we could see what God sees and we could see all of eternity open as a meadow, we would just sit there and praise. We wouldn't complain near as much, probably none of the complaints that we now have. You and I have a tendency to take our narrow view and judge God, judge other people, judge our life. And God is saying, oh child, eternity lies open like a meadow to me. You trust me and you walk with me. And when I bring a hurting thing into your life, don't scream at me. (laughs) Understand that I know what I'm doing and that if I allow a little bit of pain now, It is because I am doing something for all of eternity that you just can't see. But can you trust my heart towards you? Can we say along with the psalmist, you have kept me from all evil? Because one day we will say that. We will stand before his throne and we will sing and say, you've kept us from all evil. The worst evil of all being our own hearts that deceive us and are hardened and that lead us to places we shouldn't go. The Lord will keep us from all evil. He will keep our life. And we can trust him, even if we don't understand him. So we see that God's protection is constant. It's all-encompassing. It's wise. Even when we don't understand it, it's everlasting and eternal. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So if this is a parable for all of life, If the psalmist is thinking through our lives as he's writing this beautiful hymn, what is your going out? It's your birth into the world. It is God keeping and attending and guarding over your life as it enters into the world. And your coming in is your homecoming. God guarding and keeping and watching over you carefully as he brings you back home. As he flings wide open the doors of heaven for you. My grandmother passed away a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, and she was 96 years old, and she loved Jesus. She was a saint um, that I aspire to be one day. And it is really beautiful to watch a saint face their death (laughs) because it really was just a homecoming. I have a quick funny story. So my my grandmother had a little bit of dementia towards the end. And she and I were sitting there talking, and, and I, we were talking about how she was ready to go home. And so we began to talk about heaven. And I was saying, oh, it's going to be so great, Grammy. You're going to get to see your sister and your parents, and you're going to get to see Bob, who is my grandfather. And I said, oh, and most especially, you'll get to see Jesus. And she patted me, and she goes, oh, I do miss him. And I was like, I know, Grammy. I miss him, too. I can't wait to see him. And she goes, he was just such a beautiful dancer. <laughs> wait a second. (laughs) I think we're talking about Bob. And we were, (laughs) because Bob was a beautiful dancer. and She began to tell me all about all the dances they met, uh, dancing. And so it was just funny though. But on the day that she died, um, of course I felt, I just felt sad. The grief of losing someone you love and the time that you will no longer have with them. But there was, I was so thankful for that dementia moment because (laughs) I thought, He is a beautiful dancer, and he has danced her into his home. He has escorted her from one place to the next, and she will dance with Jesus for all of eternity. I'm pretty sure that the one who created rhythm and music is a beautiful dancer. And so this psalm is really precious because it's saying, your going out into this world has been guarded by God, and every single moment of your life has been tenderly guarded over and protected by him. Even if you haven't understood that, and even if you haven't seen it, and you're going home, you're coming in, your homecoming will also be guarded and protected and cared for by God. And none of us looks forward to dying. That is something none of us want. My daughter regularly prays that Jesus will return before I die. So there's a chance that that might happen. (laughs) None of us wants to die. And yet what this psalm is saying is, you're dying. This thing that you and I have been afraid of. Hebrews tells us that the children of man are afraid of death. And that's what the enemy has used to keep, to keep us enslaved. He's kept us in a cage all of our lives because we're afraid of death. And the psalmist is telling us, you don't have to be afraid of that. Your death is just Jesus walking you home. Into, flinging wide open the doors of his father's house and saying, come here. I saved a space for you at the father's table. Come sit here with me. That's what your death is in the kingdom of God. Every aspect of our life is kept. Shamar is guarded over, protected, and attended to carefully by our God. It's everlasting and eternal. And I think that's actually really precious. That God's care for us does not end in heaven. He says here that he will keep us. He will care for us and attend to us carefully from this time forth and forevermore. All of heaven is God hovering over you. And singing over you and protecting and guarding and keeping you and attending to you carefully. Because that's what he loves to do. You are precious in his sight. And he will spend all of eternity attending to you and to your heart. And so we see all these beautiful things. But the last thing that we see is actually something that's easily missed, missed. That God's protection is best understood in community. And we see that from the pronouns. So in verses one and two, we have one lone singer, one singer who says, I lift my eyes to the hills. I feel afraid. Where does my help come from? And he claims faith. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. But then verses three and following, look at the pronouns. They shift. Remember, this is a song sung in community. So one singer cries out with fear and faith. And the rest of the community for the rest of the song, gathers around the singer and sings to him of who his God is. Sings over and over of the character and nature of our God. And so this psalm is showing us that nobody can walk this road alone. If you try to preach truth to your heart all by yourself, you will not last very long. Because the road is hard and the days are long and the waves will hit you again and again and again. What you need are other gospel singers in your life. You need a community of faith who reaches out and takes your hand and says, I know you're tired and you can't sing, so let me sing to you. Let me tell you about who your God is and what he has already done and what he has pledged by the blood of his boy he will keep doing for you. And let me sing to you when you can't sing for yourself. And that takes intention and care. I'm really glad that you showed up to a women's retreat Because building community is how we find these gospel singers. We have to know one another. We have to know each other's stories. You have to know what your sister's struggles are, the ways the enemy lies to her. Like we saw in Psalm 42 and 43, that saint feared being forgotten by God. If that's your fear, you need a friend who comes alongside of you and says, he will never leave you or forsake you. He cannot forget you. He knows your name. It's engraved on his hands. You belong to him. You need a friend who will sing that over your heart when you can't believe it for yourself. We need one another on this road. That's why God does not save us and then immediately take us into eternity. He leaves us here for one another. So we can help one another walk each other down that road until we reach glory together. And so God's care can be understood in part by yourself, but never fully. You can't see God fully just on your own. You need your brothers and sisters. You need saints who have gone before you. You need the saints who are following up behind you. You need to be surrounded by the voices of those who have known God and who can sing to you of his character and nature. And you have to learn to be a singer to others too. You have a role in the community. Every one of us is a part of a beautiful choir that sings the praises of our God, not just to him, but to each other. So that when we feel discouraged, And when we feel alone, and when we feel forgotten and forsaken, we have someone who can take our face and say, I know what's true, and I know you struggle to believe it, but I'll sing it over you until it sinks down into your heart and you can grab it on your own. And one day I'm going to need you to do this for me too. So let's learn to sing to one another and be the people that we were called to be. Here's why I like talking about Psalm 121 to women. When God looked at Adam and he said, it's not good for you to be alone. I will send you an Azer, and she will help you. You and I have in our beautiful divine DNA, the Azer help of God. This is who we were created to be. We were created to reflect this part of God's heart to the world. We were created to be the people who come alongside the weak and the weary and the broken and say, let me lend you my strength because I know who our God is. And I can sing of his beautiful character and nature to you. You and I are meant to be the rescuing hand of God in this world. The one that comes alongside the weary and the broken and lifts them up and surrounds them and protects them and defends them. If you start to look at the women of the Old Testament, you'll see that that every one of them that's listed, for the most part, this is how they use their strength. They hover over and protect and defend the children of God on his behalf. This is who you are meant to be as the azer of God. And so we need to call one another out. We need to look at one another and say, be strong, because I need you to be strong for me and be strong for the people in your life and show them the God who loves to surround them and to protect them and to defend them and to attend to them carefully. We can do this in a really beautiful way if we so desire. And so I'd love to see, This group of women become Azar singers to one another and to your church because you have a beautiful role to play there. And so I will pray for you that you do that. And as we close, I do always end. We have an even greater resource than the psalmist had because you and I, when we look to the hills and we feel afraid, he looked to the hills and he cast his eyes up to the transcendent creator. You and I look to the hills and we feel afraid, but we can cast our eyes not only to the transcendent creator, but to the one who hung on a cross on the hill. You and I have a name we can cry out, a name we can sing about to one another. We have Jesus, and when we are afraid, and when we feel forsaken and forgotten on this road, and we cry out to God, have you left me? You and I get to hear the voice of the Father say, leave you, forsake you, forget you? How could I forget you? Behold, I have carved your name on my hands and I have forgotten and forsaken and left my son on the cross so that I would never have to do that to you. He already bore that for you. I could never forget you. Because I've already turned my back on him that day and poured out the wrath that your sin deserves so that now when you're on the road and you feel forgotten and forsaken and left alone, you can hear the father's voice say, I would never do that to you. Because your older brother already paid the price for that. And I will come to you and I will attend to you carefully and I will guard you and I will keep you from the hot sun from the moon at night, from all the temperature differences in between. And I will surround you with people who will sing of my great name to you so that you can have hope. And this is where we draw the power to have this kind of hope in the world. We look to the hill where Jesus Christ hangs and where he died and where he suffered and where God's punishment was poured out. And we can know with certainty in our hearts that our God loves us. I love that Paul later on says that God demonstrates or proves his love for us in this. While we were still enemies and haters of God, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't need any more proof than Jesus on the cross, that your God loves you and he will never leave you or forsake you. And you don't need any more proof than the empty tomb that your God's got this, that eternity really does lie open to him as a meadow. And even if all you can see is the narrow inch, this narrow inch of the lane of time, your God understands what's happening in all of eternity. And he is guarding you and keeping you and protecting you and leading you on a path that will lead you up straight to the doors of his house. And they will one day fling wide open and you'll see my grandma dancing. (laughs) dancing with Jesus, and all the saints will say, we're so glad you're here. Come home. Come be with us, and let's spend the rest of our lives marveling over the care of God who protected us and kept us until the day we saw him face to face. I'm excited to be a part of this community, all of us together, so let's pray and thank God for this community. God, thank you for the ways you have guarded us and kept us for the ways you have protected us. Lord, I pray that when we want to doubt your care, when we want to look at you and say, you have not kept me from all evil, look at what has been done to me, that we would remember the scars of your son, that we would see the marks of evil on his body. And we would remember that he willingly accepted those so that we could have your smiling face and we could trust you. So God, I pray for our hearts as we process these things, especially as we come to our next session and we talk about how do we do this practically. Lord, I pray that we would feel the call of Jesus in our life to join our voices with him, to sing this psalm over each other, to sing of the character and nature of our God, to be the kind of women who usher in strength and hope into the room when we walk in, because we know who our God is and we sing of his character and nature to the watching world. Lord, make that be true of us. And help us come alongside one another when we feel weak and weary. And help us see the broken in our community and the hurting and the ashamed. And help us come to them and lift their faces to see you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.